Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes Live and Miniseries features Rav Mike Foyer. For more information on how to download more podcasts, visit elmod.pardes.org. As always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, that's P-A-R-D-S dot org dot I-L for helping make this class happen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see your fresh faces. Those of you guys who are uh, on video, those of you who are not, I understand if you're in your PJs, you'll never know that I'm actually wearing polka dot pajamas just below the angle of the camera, but I'm revealing this to you now in order to just make you smile. Um, so seriously, so we are in the midst of discussion of enlightenment and emancipation, and we have, as far as I know, two classes left. Um, until the Pesach break. My goal in these two classes, today and next week, is to lay out the story of Moses Mendelssohn, both as a personal story, but also in order to understand what exactly did the Enlightenment and Emancipation mean for the journey of the Jews into modernity. So that's our task for today. Um, I'm not quite sure how far into it I'll get. I have about 17 pages here. I can say for absolute certainty that we won't get all the way through it today. But Mendelssohn's life is very rich because each of the major sort of works or events in his life really can serve as almost, um, if not an archetype, then at very least an exemplar of the challenges and methods that Am Yisrael used to engage modernity. So we're going to get started with that. You guys ready? Just give me the thumbs up there. All right. Um, thanks. It's helpful, by the way. Nonverbal feedback is actually really critical for teaching well in this medium. So just keep that in mind. Um, so the, if you, I want to start by just reviewing the sort of two attitudes within Enlightenment European culture that we saw last week, which exemplify kind of the two potential paths that Am Yisrael could take into European culture, right? And they, and they were represented by two personalities. If you recall, we saw first Montesquieu, you know, Baron de Montesquieu, very essayist, philosopher, very important contribution to sort of um, European and arguably human culture in his um, works on law, in particular introducing the concept of, you know, the, the separation of powers into the Western discourse. But for our purposes, you'll recall that Montesquieu also had this strange notion that humanity is a product of its environment, right? And in particular, that meant for the Jews that just like everyone else, we were the product of our environment which on one hand was a very positive conclusion to draw because it meant that the Jews, as they were construed in the European environment, remember, which had been excluded and kept in a subject position and forced into various unsavory sort of financial positions and all of the prejudices that we saw in ancient Jew hatred, that combination of the economic and the religious. So Montesquieu said, that's not at all what the Jews are. There's nothing intrinsic about any human being. Every human being is, an, is a product of their environment. Therefore, if... We emancipate the Jews, then they, become, they can become a member of European society. But as he said, the Jew can become a member of European society, but first he has to become a European. He has to be regenerated. He has to shed all of those negative traits that Europeans associate the Jews before we grant him his civil rights or together with it. Right? Montesquieu is that person who represents the path of European enlightenment, which is you're welcome to join our society, but first check your culture at the door right? That the Jews are welcome into society, but not as Jews. Montesquieu was a little bit more liberal because he believed that by welcoming us in, we would cease to be Jews. And if you recall, he was a deist himself and really felt that there would be a purified form of Judaism 
just as he felt he practiced the purified form of Christianity, which would emerge from that process. And that's one whole path, and we're going to see that path repeat itself. And I think you can probably sense how, on one hand, that's a great stride forward for tolerance and acceptance of Jews. On the other hand, it's a pretty high price to ask. And what what sort of lurks behind it is this question, which we'll also return to repeatedly today, which is, was, was European enlightened society actually a secular society, or was it simply Christianity in disguise? Right? When they spoke about the universal rights of man, did they mean the universal rights of Christians? Not as practicing Christians, because of course, all of these philosophs and enlightened philosophers sort of di disparaged traditional Christianity and the power of the church, but what they saw as a purified deist form of Christian culture. So therefore, was it just a new guise for the old-fashioned demand that the Jews convert? Right? So now, nevertheless, Montesquieu represents, I would say, a more tolerant path, if not so sort of optimal. The other personality that we saw was Voltaire. Right? Voltaire, we touched on this question amongst academics and historians whether Voltaire actually himself was personally an anti-Semite. I, I ascribe to that sort of old-fashioned camp that says if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck, <laughs> you know? So, so, but either way, what Voltaire says very clearly because of his belief in what, what he calls polygenism, this notion that unlike Montesquieu, who believed in this sort of universal origin of humanity and then the sort of various environmental factors that had worked to create the races, the nations, the language, Right? Voltaire believed in a polygenic origin of humanity, that there were actually different origins for the different, what he called, racial groups. Right? And therefore, hey, somebody else just claimed host for me. And therefore, um, there's sort of never the two shall meet. The Jews are an Asian origin. They don't belong in classic European culture. Remember, Voltaire, like many of his contemporaries, in the uh, French Enlightenment, reached back over Christianity into European history in order to pull from Greco-Roman culture to find what he felt to be the pure and true nature of European culture. And of course, what did he find there? Lo and behold, they didn't love the Jews either. Right? And he was fond of quoting classical sources, not Christian, because he said, well, Christians, Christianity is anti-Semitic because they hate them and it's all religious nonsense, etc. But look, the classic Greco-Roman cultures, that... Wait, you can't mute me. Yeah, whoever whoever was just in charge, don't don't mute me. I don't know who is playing host right now, but like, please don't mess with my mic. Um, so the so Voltaire represents a completely different path of Am Yisrael into modernity, and really, in many ways, it is that the Jews are an alien. He labeled them as Asian, an alien Asian element, and therefore he actually, in many ways, opposes emancipation. So then what does the solution look like for Jews in a civil state for Voltaire? He doesn't really address it himself, but the logical conclusion, particularly in light of what we all know about the rest of European history, is expulsion. Right? If, if something cannot be reformed, regenerated, and therefore digested into the host, read modern European society, then in order for that host to be healthy, it must then be expelled. And in this, we see already the groundwork is being laid for the whole arc of Jewish history with up into the, through the 20th century, the mid of the 20th century, which is there are kind of two paths, assimilation and expulsion. And we'll see a core of traditionalists, as we spoke about last week, who will maintain cultural integrity at an increasing price, right? But, but the assimilationists go the way they'll go. We'll speak about their origins in the Berlin Enlightenment today. The 
we know what happened with Nazi Germany and the expulsionists. I, actually, there is one more piece, and it's a time to plug the Omer program. Of course, what's the other option? That's a real question. Uh, if you're shouting it out and your mic is, is muted. What? Zionism, meaning get out while you still can, <laughs> right? Meaning assimilation, no thanks. Expulsion, which, by the way, expulsion, as we know, with Nazi Germany also meant elimination. Yeah, Zionism. Somehow we have to reconstitute ourselves as a people in our land, and that's the only option. And it's not a surprise, then, from this equation that Zionism is one of those powerful movements to emerge in the later part of modernity. Okay, so that um, the, is the background for our discussion. And we're going to see that Mendelssohn really sort of um, maps a number of those pieces. Uh, okay, so we'll start just directly into his story. And we'll see, I also wanted to touch on some of the larger political context, but I think it, it's better to get into the narrative. Questions or comments on that before we, um, before we move forward? And by the way, you can... Um, the, you can raise your hand. If you look in the participants box, you can raise your hand and that will allow me to see who's out there. But also you can like physically raise your hand or if you want, just unmute yourself and call out. So questions or comments? Yeah, Avram. So, so we're not going to get to Napoleon in this round of things. My arc... You know, after we do the Omer five-part series on the sort of the heralders of Zionism, is we'll pick up right where we left off in modernity, and, and likely the two next tracks after the Berlin Enlightenment will be the, the French Enlightenment culminating in the Revolution and Napoleon and what you're referring to, and then Russia, and the emergence of the, of the Pale of Settlement, and ultimately the, the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment that occurred in Eastern Europe, which is profoundly different than that which occurred based in Berlin. So... We'll get there, B'Zoft Hashem. Other questions or comments before we move forward with Mendelssohn's story? Yeah, Shelley. you got to unmute yourself, though. Sorry, we're all dealing with technical issues. Don't worry. I think I could probably unmute you, but you can do it. Um, let me see if I find your name here. There's so many people here. Uh, you can, in your lower left-hand corner, you should be able to unmute yourself. I don't know why I can't seem to find you there. Oh, wait. There you go. No, I, I'm, 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 I'm unmuting you, but it's not working. Apparently, I'm... There you go. Yeah, I mean, that's a, great, that's a great question. And my answer is yes, but not on the same scale. I'm not familiar. We could find other minority groups. For instance, there were uh, and is still a longstanding conflict, particularly um, where, where Turkey had managed to conquer parts of Eastern Europe and then be pushed back. The, the Muslims were a group that were not highly tolerated. I'm sure we could find other small groups. But the thing is that the Jews, as we've seen at this point in the arc of our story, are built into the structure of Europe, right? Since, since the 4th, 5th century, and really before, with Rome. So therefore, no one really compares in the dilemma of Europe trying to become an enlightened secular society 
the Jewish question is the one that comes up. That's not just an obsession of the Jews. It's a natural structural problem, as we're going to see. Yeah, Aviva. Gypsy is a good example. But then the gypsy would be a great example of what I'm speaking about. They're like a, a local issue, but they don't have a fundamental structural role. They're nomadic, and they actually play a, a somewhat important, if unloved, role in the economics of uh, you know, the Central European areas in which they live. Um, other questions or comments, so we're going to get going with Moses Mendelssohn. Okay, let's do it. Don't, don't be shy. We'll, we will all work together. So, um, sort of a, a, as a word of background before we actually get into his personal stories, it's, it's, remem it's important to remember the journey of modernity we've been on from a philosophical standpoint, which is that um, basically we have a new round of a very old struggle of, um, between philosophy and Torah, right? Chokhmah and Chokhmat Yavan, which we know from many rounds before, which we're going to call science versus religion, right? Uh, or reason versus religion is probably more accurate, and science is sort of one of its primary tools. Um, and we have seen in the last, I don't know, two or three months that as the horizons of thought have expanded, right, there have been some key individuals who dared to know, right, in that, you know, Kantian sense of enlightenment, both Torah and science, the Gra, the Ramah. We've seen a number of very important individuals. Um, so daring to know is, is actually nothing really new for the Jews. We've always been able to integrate into our epistemology, into the way we know the world, the exposures to new things. Why is modernity particularly challenging? Well, again, it's because of those four pillars of knowledge that Rav Saja gave us way back in the 10th century. Remember, sensory information, learned knowledge, logical deduction, all those things are everybody agrees upon, and then authentic tradition. Because Rav Saja said that without authentic tradition, a person is lost. There's no anchor. At the same time, he says, one has an obligation to use the first three of, of, of you know, sensory and apprehension and comprehension, logical deduction, to use those to clarify that your tradition is indeed authentic. But this whole process of modernity of uncoupling knowledge from tradition, of claiming that actually what it is to know is to reject everything which you thought you knew, everything which you've inherited through your culture and your history and your past, is actually a fundamentally new blow to the sort of Jewish culture. And the, so therefore, that's the real bombshell that the Enlightenment is offering. It's a, it's a it's a changing relationship between authentic tradition and knowledge. Now, we saw Hasidut is going to take a very particular path there. I would characterize that people are familiar with Rabbi Nachman Mibreslav, who was the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, so therefore a very important early figure in Hasidut. His attitude toward intellectual, the, like the, the chokrim, as he called them, the researchers, the scientists, anybody know how you would characterize it? He was completely ignore them. You should be willfully ignorant. Even though he himself, by the way, was not. And there are lots of interesting questions of how he treated himself as opposed to what he advocated for a Hasidim. But basically, he represented a path that Hasidut, by and large, follows to this day, which is that dat chitzoni, all this external knowledge, will, will destroy your faith, and therefore you should ignore it. Notice how that's something new. There's no way in that worldview to expand your horizons, dare to know, both Torah and 
philosophical science. Why? Because the philosophical science is based on uprooting Torah. You understand? That's that uncoupling of knowledge from tradition, which is fairly unique at this point in Enlightenment. That's the path that the Hasidut will take, and that's one of the reasons it's such a romantic movement as well. It's not that it doesn't have depth and power and, and sort of texture, etc., but it's depth, power, and texture are in the mythic language and in the self-referential mystical doctrines, which don't sort of um, bear out scientific inquiry. So that's, that's one path, but there's a whole other path that Mendelssohn will try to forge, which is actually standing up tradition to the test of philosophical inquiry in, in a sort of act of faith that it can indeed pass the test. And so let's talk about him. So Moses, son of Menachem, son of Mendel, Mendel's son, was born in Dessau, Germany in September of 1729. Now, if you recall, we, we saw a backflow. There was this sort of progression through the Middle Ages and on into early modernity of Jews from west to east. And there's been a backflow into Germany basically since the mid-17th century. And he is a product of one of these German communities that has reestablished itself. They're very small. They're highly regulated by the state to the point where the population is controlled by giving um, not only residency permits, but you need a permit to get married in many of these small German states and in the towns. And if it means if you want to get married and you don't have a permit, you have to leave, right? Or if your sort of spouse is moving from another town, you have to get special permission. It's quite a sort of bureaucratic control system over the Jews. So he's born in Dessau. He's a descendant on his mother's side from the Ramah, from Rav Moshe Isserlis, that great 16th century leader of Ashkenazi Jewry. So he's got Yichis, as we say, which is not a small thing, right? Um, because it actually allows you to be much more of a Chadshan, much more uh, innovative and liberal. Hey, I'll tell you something. If you guys remember the days of Pardes when Rabbi Landis, should be healthy and well, was the Rosh Hashiva, one of the reasons that Rabbi Landis was, was, at least in the early days, always able to push a much more cutting-edge vision of orthodoxy is because he's descended from Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank. He's got yichas. Uh, people, you know, people would say, well, I, you know, I don't agree with what he's saying, but I mean, he's a, I'm a grandson, maybe, I don't know, a great-grandson of Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank, you know, uh, okay. So in the same way, right, he's descended from the Raman, his mother's side, um, and apparently was himself a diligent scholar from a very young age. He was quickly taken under the wing by the rabbi of Dessa, who was Rav David Frankel. You may not be familiar with him, but he wrote the Korvin Eda, which is a commentary on the Yushalmi, if you're familiar with that, which, which puts him way up there in the rank of rabbinic scholarship. And the, the Yushalmi in general is not so easy to learn. The Korvin Eda is an extremely helpful tool if you want to try to do it. Um, and he was in... Rob Frankel's yeshiva from age 11. Recognized, again, one of these kids recognized very early on. Um, so brilliant, in fact, that when the rabbi was called to the big city, when he was called to Berlin in 1743, Moshe left his physical family and he followed his Torah family. Not an uncommon phenomenon in those days, and arguably not particularly uncommon in these days either. So he ends up going to Berlin, sort of under the aegis of Rav Frankel. Now, that was in 1743. Just a year before, an event occurred which had a profound effect on Mendelssohn's life and also on the lives of many of the sort of maskilim, the enlightened Jews which followed him, which is in 1742, Israel ben Abraham, who was a Christian convert to Judaism, right? Israel ben Abraham, it's a you know, good name for a convert. He owned a pre Hebrew printing press near Dessau. He reprinted the Rambam's More Nevuchim, Guide for the Perplex. Right? His great work of Jewish philosophy, if you'll recall, I hope you'll recall, the whole reason that the Rambam wrote Guide for Perplexed was he was written specifically to one student, but also to a subcategory of people, 
who was struggling to reconcile reason and revelation, philosophy and Torah. So this was the first reprinting of the Rambam's Mornuchim in 200 years in Europe, right? Um, that's a rather significant gap. And don't forget, in the information age, we often forget that, that if that book hadn't been printed for 200 years, it means that to get a copy of it, you would have had to found it in a Beit Midrash where it had been extremely well preserved. Highly unlikely, in fact, that, that when the young Moses Mendelssohn encounters this book, in a Beit Midrash in Berlin, where, where he, he does, he actually later will attribute his physical weakness and his famous hump. I don't know if you know that he was, he was hunched back, right? He attributes his physical weakness and the curve of his spine to the hours he spent poring over that book in his youth. That the Rambam actually captured his imagination, right? And many people, for that reason, affirm that the Rambam has always been the spearhead of heresy into the heart of traditional Judaism, right? Be- because he takes philosophy and he puts it on par with Torah. And the Rambam, okay, so for the Rambam, he could do that because he was the Rambam, but for the rest, that's why we've seen in this class, depending on how many years we've been together, a, it's like a series of um, the, uh, the a, a series of inquiries into the Rambam, bans, etc. Right, and so this actually doesn't provoke a new one, but it does change Mendelssohn forever, which really changes European Jewry. So Moses Mendelssohn described what he found in the Rambam as an intellectual ideal that those capable of profound thought are obligated to aspire to perfection and to recognize the truth of God by means of their intellect as well as Revelation. He roots it in, actually, ninth chapter of of, uh, Yirmiyahu. Thus saith the Lord. It's always fun to say that, isn't it? Right? Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, nor the strong man boast of his strength, nor the rich man, um, sorry, I lost my place, rich man boast of his riches, but let him that boasts exult in this, that he understands and knows me. Meaning, what's the whole point of of, um, Jewish existence? To understand and know me. And it's important to remember that that is what is driving Moses Mendelssohn. Whatever may come of him in the end, and the, as we'll see, the sort of uh, character assassination, the hatchet job, which is done on him in later generations. It's very important to remember he begins as a young man, captivated by the Rambam's vision, who then seeks to know. And, and, and who else is out there seeking to know? Remember, we looked last week, at, where we, I quoted for you, the, the key line of Kant's essay, in answer to the question, what is enlightenment? What was the first line that I quoted to you? Dare to know. So a young man who is captivated by the Rambam and is there in Berlin in the mid-18th century seeking to know is almost inevitably going to be drawn to the enlightenment circles where their whole raison d'etre, which I suppose you should say in French, right, is to dare to know. So it's not surprising that what follows follows. First, encounter with enlightened Jewish, sorry, with enlightenment, really through a Jewish uh, medium for him, not surprising, because he lives still in a very small, tight-knit, excluded Jewish society. It's said that when Mendelssohn gets to the gates of Berlin, and he's asked why he's come, he said he's come to learn Torah, and they actually have to confirm, they get a rabbi to test him, that he's indeed worthy, because the population was controlled, as I said, and there were exceptions for scholars. So meaning this is the world in which he's entered. He hasn't left their small town in Europe for the big free city. He's still living within this model in which the Jews are excluded 
or at least heavily regulated within Christian society. So his first encounter with enlightenment happens through Rav, um, Yisrael Samos. Rav Samos, as his name sort of might strike you, is actually of Spanish descent. Uh, um, and he is a sort of a Berlin rabbinic personality who is completely dedicated to integrating science and philosophy into what he sees to be a comprehensive worldview. He wasn't unique in that, and by the way, in that he's very reflective of his Spanish roots. Those of us who've been together since our, uh, our discussions of Spain, you know, while the Tosafists and the sort of later Rishonim, later medieval authorities of Europe, were sort of devoting almost exclusive attention to the Gemara and an intra-Jewish discussion, the Spanish minds, who were also, of course, mastering the Talmud, were also engaged in the depths of Greek philosophy through the medium of Arabic thought. So it's, it's not surprising that it would be someone like Rav Yisrael Samoz who was holding this sort of comprehensive worldview. But what is difficult is he found himself in the middle of Berlin, not in uh, Barcelona, right? And so therefore, he began to develop quite a harsh criticism of the religious culture within which he was embedded. Um, and in particular, what irked him was the contempt that rabbinic scholars, the, the contempt, sorry, that rabbinic scholars held for dat chitzoni, for this external wisdom, meaning science and philosophy, right? It, it just drove him nuts because it was bad enough to be ignorant. But to be contemptuous of those who had knowledge just indicated to him a complete, absolute misunderstanding of the world. Now, he wasn't the only rabbi in Berlin who felt this way at this point in the in 1740s. Um, and, and, and we have to add to this, it's very important to remember this piece, as this was not just a pure intellectual discourse. There's also a level of feeling culturally inferior. And it's important to remember that because it's almost impossible for someone who is a product of a society which has been denigrated for literally 1,500 years even though they may have sort of internalized their own sort of um, Jewish referential narrative that we are actually superior, we're the chosen people, and you may have sort of like achieved incredible heights of intellectual development within the Gemara. Nevertheless, to be thrust into a society in Berlin where, where Latin, German, French, where you're reading books and writing plays and analyzing poetry and, and science... And to know nothing, nothing about it, is almost inevitably to feel culturally inferior. And therefore, aside from a desire of a purely philosophical nature to sort of pursue the Rambam's path of, um, you know, perfection and recognition of the truth of God by all means, there is an element in this, as we'll see, we go forward, not in Mendelssohn's story, although one would assume that he wasn't perfect and suffered from that feeling, but certainly in the story of the Berlin Enlightenment, and the Jewish Enlightenment in general, of just wanting to feel good in front of the non-Jews. And, it, and it's important that psycho-emotional peace can't be ignored. So, so anyway, like I said, Samoz wasn't the only rabbi who felt this way. And in fact, there was a growing circle of young Jewish scholars who were dedicated basically to saving neglected Jewish texts on science, right, on Hebrew language, on philosophy, and to learning that external wisdom. And suddenly... Mendelssohn, having come to Berlin in order to study further with the author of the Korban Eda, which is about a traditional work of Torah, as you're ever going to find, found himself in the midst of a cultural revolution. Right? So by age 16, in order to catch up with the growing culture, he began to uh, attend uh, gymnasium lessons, right? Not 
barbell gymnasium, but right, you know, like the advanced high school cultural, right? That barbell gymnasium thing is a later development. Um, without abandoning his Torah studies, which he never does at any point in his life, but he managed to master German, French, and English in order to start to get access to the philosophical literature of his time. Just to give you a sense of this man's, or at this point, young man, boy, his intellectual capacity, the first Enlightenment work he later recalled ever studying was an essay concerning human understanding. It was by the English philosopher John Locke, one of the foundations of, um, actually, he's probably Scottish. It wasn't Locke. I just called him English. Um, ooh, that's, I mean, you can call him British, but to call him English when he's Scottish is like, ooh. Anyway, um, the, anyway, it locks in, in, that's, that's hard enough without any philosophical background, but it was written in Latin. It was written in Latin, a language Ms. Mendelssohn couldn't even read, much less speak, and therefore he spent hours and hours and hours mastering with a dictionary the language in order to be able to understand what is not a simple philosophical text. And this is the way he went about things. Um, the turning point, arguably, in his career happened in early 1753, right? So now he's been in Berlin for 10 years in the midst of this, again, intra-Jewish sort of subculture, bubbling cultural evolution, but which is still within the structure of traditional yeshiva culture, if not traditional yeshiva learning. But at, in 1753, a, a friend took Mendelssohn to, um, to one of Berlin hotspots. Like, to, you know, today... If you want to get someone off the derrick, I don't know, you take them to clubbing in New York. So in Berlin in, in, in the mid-18th century, you took them to the Scholars Club, which was called the Learned Coffee House. Right? It's a little bit more tame, perhaps, culturally, but philosophically and intellectually, it was about as racy as it gets. And Because every week, mathematicians, physicists, philosophers, theologians would meet there for a reading of a paper, and then they would discuss, and they would debate, and they would play chess and, and billiards and drink coffee. It was a coffee house, right? Um, and it was here at the, the sort of learned coffee house that Mendelssohn met and really made one of his most important lifelong friends, someone who would serve as his true bridge into the German Enlightenment society as opposed to the Jewish side of it, and that was Gotthold Ephraim Lessing. Right? Lessing, at the time, was already a well-known writer and philosopher, ultimately went on to become really one of the most influential thinkers of German Enlightenment circles. There's a story they tell that Mendelssohn had written a, a small philosophical piece and, and Lessing had encouraged, encouraged, encouraged him to read it there, um, but he wouldn't do it because he was embarrassed. So they found a third party who was willing to read the paper. And after the paper was read, a lively discussion began. People were very impressed. And someone misstated one of the elements of his thesis and, and Mendelssohn couldn't hold back. He like shouted out a correction and everyone turned around and said, everyone knew he was, he was the Jew. Like, well, what do you have to say about this? And then lo and behold, he's the author. And it was like in that moment that he was revealed, as it were, one of these classic sort of foundation legends. It may be true, in fact. But in that moment, he was revealed as a true philosophical mind. Um, and he became Jewish wonderkind. He was like this, you know, this sort of like, like he overcame the foreign language and alien culture. Become a, he was like a Cinderella story, basically, in Enlightenment circles. And shepherded by Lessing, who you couldn't have had a better mentor, in the early to mid-50s, 1750s that is, Mendelssohn began to move deeper and deeper into the world of scholarly elite of Berlin. Now, at this point, in 1754, Lessing published a play called Die Juden, which you may be familiar with. Right? The Jews, did I say that right, Peter? No? <laughs> you want to you help me out or you just want to laugh? 
Okay. I, I appreciate that. I'm going to record... No. <laughs> that, that's what I meant, I'm sure. Um, but it, the Jews... The Jews, right? And it was meant to... It was a play which was meant to force its reader, and obviously people watching it on stage, to confront the stereotypes which were still comment. Because I have a comment that was between common and current. They're still current in Christian culture in his day. The lying Jew the morally inferior Jew, the culturally backwards Jew. And through forcing the reader-watcher to confront that, to protest the legal and social barriers which existed between Jews and Christians. Now, it was enlightenment at its finest, using drama as a tool for moral education. Because last thing said, I have a quote from him, it says, the theater should be a school of the moral world. Right? So it was a beautiful effort and got some very interesting responses. Johan David uh, Michaelis, who was a professor at uh, Göttingen University, actually published a critique of it. And his critique was quite simple. He said a good play should be written by someone who's committed to putting a real-life character on stage. And Lessing clearly failed when he created a Jew who everyone knows doesn't exist in real life. An honest, morally upright, intellectually superior Jew. You hear it? Because the Michaelis writes, which was a very common sense, even in Berlin, Enlightenment society, that the Jews were intrinsically hostile to Christianity by the nature of their religion. They were immoral by virtue of their occupation with trade, which made them almost by definition liars and deceivers. Now, you can imagine that this quite hurt and humiliated Mendelssohn, who was the sort of um, model for Lessing's enlightened Jew in the play. And it evoked a crucial response. Because up until now, Mendelssohn had kept himself out of the public sphere. Intellectually, he began to release little by little what he was thinking. But he'd stayed out of any polemic, any public argument. But now, having seen no less than Lessing put up a play and have it criticized as completely false because everybody knew the Jews were dirty, lying cheats. Because <laughs> everybody knows that, because that's just what they are. Mendelssohn realized... But so long as the Jews were contained within an intra-Jewish discourse, they would have no ability to ever respond to the hatred and prejudice that surrounded them, right? Um, and what, be, what resulted was a series of letters and essays back and forth on both sides. And it was from this point on that Mendelssohn began to realize that his real calling lay beyond simple philosophical inquiry. They had a responsibility, actually, to make universal one simple Conclusion. It was a conclusion he saw rooted as in reason and, um, and natural rights and humanism, all the pillars of the Enlightenment. Reason, natural rights, humanism. One simple conclusion, which was a Jew is a human being. And that may sound obvious, I hope, <laughs> to, to you and I, but just appreciate the fact that even in the height of the Berlin Enlightenment, in the mid to late 18th century that was simply not a foregone conclusion because there were almost 18 or 1700 years of Christian Jew hatred that it had to get through. Um, so in order to actually do this, it's interesting that we're going to see that Mendelssohn now opens up a battle on two fronts. First of all, we'll see what he does vis-a-vis -vis the non-Jews, but his first initial response really was he felt he had to bring the light of reason to his own people, that the Jews had to be worthy of entry into Enlightenment culture. And in this, we can feel a little bit of Montesquieu, 
of that sense that, well, the Jew has to be reformed. And perhaps also a little bit of the shame of cultural inferiority. Um, the vehicle that he chooses was called uh, Kohelet Musar. It was a collection of, of new Hebrew literature, which was published by Mendelssohn in Berlin, and his friend, together with his friend Tobias Bach, let's not forget him, right, in the, in the sort of mid to late 1750s. It was published as a periodical, right, a vehicle which became popular at this point in the Enlightenment. It's going to play a very important role toward the end of the 18th century for the Jewish Enlightenment. It's called Kohelet Musar, um, and his goal was basically to bring the beauty that he himself had found in Enlightenment culture to his fellow Jews. This was the intra-Jewish part. Um, articles that, again, um, took up the battle of Hebrew language. Right? Trying to get the Jews to get back to Hebrew was something which was going to become a centerpiece of Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, the sort of renaissance of the Jewish language, and was fought bitterly by many of the rabbinic authorities of the day. Um, he wrote articles lamenting the neglect of biblical Hebrew by generations of Ashkenazi scholars in particular who were focused on the Talmud. Um, and, he, and he called for a revival of, of Hebrew, of a renewed biblical studies, creation of a whole new literature. And what's interesting is he cited as his example all the other European peoples who were at this point engaged in reviving their language. He says, why are we dreaming and inert? Why do we not apply their example to our language, which is most eminent and ancient? Now, the words like that, I think most of us would associate with the Zionist revival of Hebrew language. Because if you're familiar with European history, um, European Romantic nationalism, which isn't really on the stage at this point, you know, it's more of a product of the 19th than the 18th century, and we can trace its philosophical roots into the 18th century, but as a practical movement, it's really a product of the 19th century. Um, nevertheless, it was bound up with the sense that language is the keystone of culture. And that, and that a people who has a language is indeed a people, and sort of conversely, one who does not is not, which is one of the arguments which was made against the Jews. This one speaks Yiddish, that one speaks Ladino, that one speaks French, that one... There are no Jews, there are a bunch of Jewish peoples, right? And, and so therefore, the revival of the Hebrew language is going to be central from this point forward to a sense of reconstituting a Jewish people. That's not what Mendelssohn's interested in. Let's just remember that. In fact... The, the little bit of Zionist um, engagement he got from his Christian fellows who had an eschatological interest in the Jews returning to the land of Israel. There's always been a subset of Christians who believe that in order for their second coming to occur, the Jews have to be re-embodied in our land. And Mendelssohn had some of those friends. He would scoff at them. Despite the fact that he believed in the coming of the Messiah and the ultimate redemption, he said, like, no, those are otherworldly questions. So, so th this is simply a cultural desire because... Because Kohelet Musar was part of his project of a two-front war. He's going to fight, as we will see, against the world around him in the German Enlightenment to try to demand the Jew as a human being, the Jew as a human being. And then he's going to turn around to his fellow Jews and say, you know what? Be a mensch. Right? Be a mensch. Because if you, if you want to be part of society and you want them to believe me when I say that we're mentioned, remembering, of course, that's what the word means, <laughs> they, then, then you actually have to be a mensch. And to him, being a mensch meant being cultured, enlightened, philosophical, but not abandoning Torah. Don't mistake the reality of Mendelssohn with the brush with which he's been painted. So this was a project that, which we began, made very little impression in its day, by the way. Kohlet Musar only went through two editions, um, and its cir circulation was basically negligible. But the very idea of publishing a journal devoted to a moral reformation 
and a journal, by the way, which was free from rabbinic supervision. Remember, rabbinic supervision at this point was the absolute necessity of any really authoritative publication in its day. It didn't necessarily have a legal stamp, but if you put out a, uh, a book of Torah that didn't have an approbation, people weren't going to read it. In fact, they might even put it under the ban. Here's a journal whose purpose is now moral instruction. It's free from rabbinic supervision. That very act was a subversive step. Was there a question there? I thought I heard something. No? Um, so, at this point, one of the um, centerpieces of Mendelssohn's sort of integration into the German Enlightenment society is something which was called natural theology. Right? Natural theology was kind of where religion met natural law. Right? Remembering that, that for much of European and Jewish history, the roots of theology were revelation. Right? You look into your text or into your inherited tradition if you want to understand God and God's will in the world. Natural law was rooted in that deist notion that God created the world as a watchmaker, put every piece in place, wound it up, and walked away. So that revelation doesn't happen, but you can know God's will by knowing the world. That's why reason becomes one of the chief tools of religious development. Natural theology was basically trying to put them together. And together with other members of the German Enlightenment, he claimed that philosophical study was the way to know God and to grasp, even without revelation, the truths of creation. Here's a great quote in a letter to a Christian friend. He says, Our common God is not the God of Jews or Christians, but the God of all human beings. Right? A beautiful sentiment, obviously very Jewish, since like, it's not your God, my God, there's only one God, but it creates a bridge. One of the things to remember this whole, in his whole story, one of the things that perhaps Mendelssohn failed to understand, or maybe he did understand and didn't care, I don't really know, um, is that always remember a bridge works two ways. If you want to create a bridge for your people out of the ghetto to get out and mingle in society, that means that you're going to bring that society right into your home. Right? And, um, and in many ways, his projects will be plagued by that. I'll give you an example, because we're not going to speak in, in depth, but just an example. Mendelssohn was part, he was the, the uh, sort of uh, driver of a, a large project for translating the Bible into G uh, modern German. It was called the Biur. People may be familiar with it. He, wasn't, he didn't do it all himself. It's often misstated that he himself did the whole translation. He did large parts of it, but also um, uh, uh, Wellesley Hurst and other people um, were involved. The key is his purpose was to try and bring the beauty of the Bible to, to his sort of uh, fellow Jews who didn't had no mastery of Biblical Hebrew, as well as to bring the beauty of German language to his fellow Jews who had a mastery of the Bible, but not German language. But when you build that bridge, everything else will flow over it. Once you master a language, you're not just going to be able to read your Mendelssohn's commentary on the Bible, you're also going to be able to read German philosophy. You're going to be able to read Kant. You're going to be able to read you know, the parts of Voltaire that were translated in German. And that type of bridge has impacts which simply can't be foreseen. So um, just to give you a sense of where he's going within the Berlin Enlightenment, in 1763, one of Mendelssohn's essays took a first prize in the Royal Academy of Science competition. That was a very big deal in the day. You want to get appreciation for it. Immanuel Kant also was part of that competition. He lost to Mendelssohn. Um, so the essay was actually an assertion that philosophy could include genuinely objective arguments 
and was the backbone of Mendelssohn's rational philosophical proof for the existence of God. If you're familiar with Kant's philosophy in, in, in phenomena, you can understand why they were at loggerheads there. If not, it's not so critical. But that argument is going to remain critical to Mendelssohn's sort of underlying understanding of Judaism, that one can philosophically, objectively prove the existence of God, and, it will, and that assertion, even though many people won't necessarily understand him, will be an absolutely essential bridge for many traditionalist believers into Enlightenment thought. Because if there is a rational philosophical proof for God, that means that philosophy does not intrinsically contradict Torah. You understand on a simple level, whether we understand this proof or agree or not. Once people accepted that, it meant that philosophy was no longer out of bounds. Because if philosophy could indeed demonstrate the existence of God, then it can't be all bad. And it can't be intrinsically contradictory. Um, so the life progresses, as it does for all of us. Mendelssohn fell apparently madly in love with a young Frumit Guggenheim. They were married in 1762, right before he won that essay contest I just mentioned. Uh, eventually went on to have 10 children together. And their whole courtship and their life together was held up by the later Maskilim, the sort of later disciples of the Berlin Enlightenment, as an expression of this modern ideal of romantic love. Don't undervalue that, by the way. Everyone here, I'm hoping, has seen Fiddle on the Roof. Yeah, Joanne. You got on mute, though. You should be able to do it on your lower, your lower left-hand corner. Hi. No, he marries in 1762. That was, that was Mendelssohn, but he was, he was like 11, or, or he might have been slightly older than 11. He's born, I met his mother and father. I met his mother and father, sorry. Other family. Right. Um, so, so the it, it's a little bit of a side point, but it's actually worth just putting a small finger on that. That idea of romantic love is a critical part of the entry into modernity. Like I said, we've all seen Fiddler on the Roof. Right. There's a reason that the theme in, in, in the Shalmalechem stories that serve as the base for the popular musical. Right. A major theme there is that society in the medieval, pre-modern mentality, makes decisions for the individual based on what is perceived to be the good of society, good of the family, also the good of the individual. They're not, it's not ignored. But, but the, the assertion of, of modern romantic love is like, what do I care what society says? What do I care what my family thinks? I am in love. Right? And, and in this, Mendelssohn's relationship with uh, Fruma Guggenheim would be late, held up later as sort of a a model by his disciples. So like I said, they had, they had 10 children, thank God, but their first birth actually ended in tragedy. Uh, a young baby that died soon after birth, right? it's from this personal tragedy actually that the question of the immortality of the soul became an urgent personal issue for Mendelssohn. I mean, it had always been an existential philosophical question which he held, but he now set out on a quest to find a logical proof for the existence of the immortal soul. Now, in, in, you know, this may either sound silly to you or fascinating, right? Um, but you should appreciate that this was the holy grail of Enlightenment society in its day. And I use that term deliberately. Why? Because for all the freedom 
that modernity gained by throwing off the shackles of superstition, meaning chucking traditional religion, right? Don't forget that religion actually offers relationship to a world which is not bounded by our capacity to know. Right? Religion, by stating absolutes, God exists. Your soul is real. God chose the Jews' people. What, fill in the blank. Things which are not a product of human reason. It allows us to relate to a world which we can't grasp with our reason. Right? And, and that can be very comforting because not everything is subject, at least it seems, to analytical thought. And so therefore, what happens right, it is that in a culture which is increasingly suffering what, um, what the great sociologist Max Weber calls disenchantment. I don't know if people are familiar with this notion. It's highly worthwhile to read Weber's essay on disenchantment as a characteristic which is um, sort of symptomatic of modernity. This sense that once upon a time the world lived in a magic forest. Now it's true that that magic forest had a lot of like demons and evil fairies and and shadows behind the trees, etc. But it was a world of mystery which always held out hope because it wasn't limited by human capacity to know. That with modernity and the disenchantment, what he calls the bureaucratization of knowledge, and it's a word, if people are curious, I can dig up the essay in my, in my um, notes. It's a very powerful, what I would say is in, almost an indictment of modernity. Right? In that world, the, the religion's ability to give what are often illogical answers to really pressing questions can instill a sense of magic and therefore hope into life. Don't forget, we've said it many times, the definition of hope is the belief that what is does not dictate what will be. And the way to say that in our context is that there's a world larger than you know. And if there's a world larger than you know, you can be plagued by doubt. I say, what's going to happen? You say, I don't know. But you can also be filled with wonder. I say, what's going to happen? You say, I don't know. Don't know, right? And it's that wonder which modernity unconsciously and sometimes deliberately targets in this process of disenchantment. And the later half of the 18th century is really when the reality of life without magic began to set in for European culture. Together with enlightenment came skepticism and philosophical materialism, which you know often are very corrosive to morality. Let's face it. You know, pure philosophy has always struggled to find a basis for morality. And the best basis, which has typically been argued, has been utilitarianism, right? The greatest amount of good, the greatest amount of people. And we see today a very frightening expression of that in the face of the coronavirus. I mean, how many of you have heard the phrase, well, it's only old people who are getting fatally ill from corona? It's like I hear it all the time, that word only i'm sorry <laughs> if you said it is old people who are getting sick that's a statement of fact as soon as you put the word only in there it's a moral statement and that is a moral statement which emerges from a culture which has nothing other than utilitarian standards by which to judge the value of life because it means well they don't have so much life anyway left and, you know, the young people are the productive sizes, fill in your blank. And so this has its root, that sense of the devaluation of the intrinsic nature of human life, has its roots in the philosophical materialism and skepticism which came in the wake of the breakdown of traditional religion in Europe in the, in the 18th century. And so Mendelssohn fought that current to his dying day. 
And one of the great sort of um, tools he brought to bear on it was a product of his own personal tragedy. His whole life was a struggle to combine deep faith with Enlightenment philosophy. And therefore, he was really uniquely positioned to address those root causes of what we would today call the existential fear that was bubbling up through the cracks all over Europe. In killing God, did we reduce the world to meaninglessness? And as a Jew, particularly as a Jew, the bedrock of his reality was the existence of a creator who cares enough for creation to grace it with the Torah. Remember, he never gives up on the notion that the Torah was revealed to Israel by God. But as a philosopher, he's an optimist. He's in that school of Leibniz, who, of course, Voltaire mocks with this notion of the best of all possible worlds. If you haven't read Voltaire's um, play Candide, it's like it's kind of an absolute necessity for, for a modern culture. Go home now. right? Um, but he's an optimist, and he rejects what he calls the radical, frivolous philosophy embodied by Voltaire and the French Enlightenment. So he's got his Jew side. Torah is. It just is. It's an expression of a caring God. And he's a philosophical optimist. All right? And therefore, in Mendelssohn's view, living without God and submitting to the base instincts of humanity are the greatest of all evils that threaten mankind. And that, those words deserve reflection in, in our culture. He says that living without God and submitting to the base instincts are the greatest of all evils that threaten mankind. And as far as he was concerned, there isn't a necessary sort of causality between the two. It's not like as soon as you abandon God, you become a base, immoral person. But he saw a correlation, let's say, in European culture. So therefore, he saw that modern man needed new anchors to hold on to. The old classic ones were gone, and he was part of getting rid of them. He was, after all, an Enlightenment philosopher. Because he, he didn't want humanity to be swept into an atheistic despair or gross hedonism. And the two very often go together. I, I, maybe I think I mentioned it in this class before, but I've been hearing increasingly from my students the rise of hedonism as, as a, um, a legitimate philosophical response to looking. I mean, before it was just, you know, climate disaster. Now, with, with the coronavirus, this expression YOLO. You familiar with this? I see some nodding heads, right? Right? YOLO. I always thought it was a yogurt. You only live once which is the modern version of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. Right? And, and, and that is precisely what Mendelssohn saw as the great evil which was facing European culture. Peggy, you had a question there, a comment? No? no? I thought you were waving. Um, okay. So, so um, and in particular, the classic fear that a religion addresses is the fear of death. Let's face it, to this day, you know, the existentialists like to call religion psycho-emotional thumb-sucking, right? And basically, you can't handle the reality of meaninglessness, so you find your God, and you wrap your God blanket around you, and you're scared. What's everybody scared of? They're scared of death. We have a society that has managed to avoid talking about it, to avoid thinking about it. It's actually, I think, one of the most important potential positives that can come out of this entire disastrous situation. We need to talk about death, people how to do it with dignity, what to do with it within our society, how to make decisions in light of it, where do we root our values. And so Mendelssohn set out to present a philosophical argument which would remove the fear of death. And in 1767, he publishes work called Faden. Right? It's a defense of the simplicity, in the philosophical sense, and therefore immortality of the soul. It's written as a series of dialogues 
basically revisiting the classic Platonic dialogue with Phaedo, right? Plato and Phaedo, it's a, one of the, Plato's dialogues, right? In which, sorry, sorry um, Socrates and Phaedo, right? It's Platonic dialogues with Socrates, my mistake. Um, where Socrates argues for the immortality of the soul in perpetuation for his own death. Right? It's a revisiting of that structure, and Mendelssohn in it argues that it's inconceivable that living is the sole aim of life. Right? And that nothing exists beyond it. And it's also in equally inconceivable that no explanation, no ex solution exists for suffering and evil. Furthermore, he insists that it's inconceivable the same fate awaits the righteous and evildoers alike. Meaning, these are classic religious notions. The soul is immortal, right? There, there, there is a reason for suffering, and there is justice. It's not true that the wicked and the righteous basically meet the same end. And now, for a book which is rooted in what sounds to me like traditional Jewish and Christian theology, you wouldn't believe it, but it became one of the most widely read German books of its day. It was translated into several other languages. The first edition sold out within four months. It was a bestseller, and more editions followed very quickly. There were a total of 11 editions that were published in Mendelssohn's lifetime. Right? That basically, he's got basically 20 years, 25 years left of his life from, the, from its earliest. 11 editions. One every two years, basically. Um, yeah. So, and Phaedon was, in its, by, by contemporary critics, was, was um, credited for consoling countless readers, and it was the work that gained Mendelssohn the title of the German Socrates, which is how he became known in Enlightenment circles. So, uh, I have never read the work, because I think that the philosophy of the Enlightenment is not where I would look to, to know that my soul is immortal. But nevertheless, I think we need to appreciate both its importance because it illuminates for us what were the philosophical and moral challenges which were bound up in the birth of modernity, which hasn't gone away, which is the modernity struggles to offer a sort of a robust alternative to sort of a atheistic despair and gross hedonism. Look at our society today. Right? It struggles. Not that they aren't out there, but it struggles. Whereas religion has, in all honesty, not done such a great alternative. Um, but we at least have some different tools to bring to bear. Right? But also in, in Mendelssohn's story, at this point, that means by 1767, he is recognized throughout Europe, and certainly in Germany, but also throughout Europe, as one of the great philosophical minds of his day. And he's a religious Jew. Which is, in terms of enlightenment, this is 1767. Technically, he can't be a citizen. Right? So the, 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 the um, sort of achievement here, as we're going to see in a moment, is made deeply painful by the social reality within which he lives. He's the exception that proves the rule that Jews are not welcome. And we're going to see that in two different incidents. Before I go there, questions or comments, we've got about a half hour, we should be able to make some good progress. But questions or comments before I go to the next stage. Yeah. I heard somebody. Avram, is that you? You gotta unmute yourself. I'll do you. There you go. No? I I I don't know why it's not working, but maybe you can write me there you go. Yes, it's it's Faden. P H a with the, uh, I think it's a, is that an umlaut with the two dots over it? 
D-O-N. You're welcome. By the way, that kind of stuff, you can... Oh, I see someone did indeed write it in the chat box. So I'll also write it there. Hang on one second. Um, to everyone. This is our technological sophistication. There you go. Um, other questions or comments? No, speak now. If I, Maureen, was that a hand or are you just making a... Yeah, you have something? You don't know how to unmute yourself? Hang on, Maureen. You gotta, if you want to ask a question, you got to unmute yourself. In your lower left-hand corner, there's a microphone symbol. No? Okay. Um, I apologize for any technical difficulties out there. You can also write questions or comments um, to... Uh, Oh, someone just said you can press the space bar to unmute yourself. That's a useful tool. Thank you. Um, that was you, Peter. Yes? Um, okay, great. So moving forward then. The sort of next major event we have in his life is known as the Lavater Affair. In April of 1763, a group of enlightened European youth made the pilgrimage to Berlin. And call it a pilgrimage is not an exaggeration because Berlin at this point is the center of European Enlightenment culture. Um, and, of course, if you're going to make a pilgrimage on your sort of cultural tour, it's an absolute necessary stop to the German Socrates. Because by 1763, even though he had not yet written Faden, Mendelssohn was still known amongst Enlightenment circles as one of the chief thinkers and most innovative thinkers today, particularly for religious people who were looking to reconcile religion and Enlightenment. And in that group was a, one Johann Kasper Lavater. He was a theology student from Zurich. And in their discussions, they met with him several times, he pressed Mendelssohn repeatedly to share his views on religion in general and on Jesus of Nazareth in particular. And you have to remember, that's a, that's a very edgy thing to ask a Jew who's basically surrounded in a non-Jewish society to share his views. I mean, I can picture it that if I had been sitting, I was one of the only white kids on my football team in high school. Nice picture if we'd been sitting around in the locker room and, so, and someone started repeatingly asking me, so what do you think of Malcolm X? What do you think of Malcolm X? What do you think of Louis Farrakhan? What do you think of Louis Farrakhan? What do you think of Louis Farrakhan? It's like, wow, where is this question going? Like, I'm not, I'm not really sure. So Mendelssohn avoided, and he avoided, and avoided, until finally in their last conversation, after receiving assurances that no public use would be made of anything that he said, Mendelssohn told this young man that he was prepared to say with extreme caution that though he had little direct knowledge of Christianity, which was true and very different for the Jews in the 18th century than today, he bore no hatred toward Christians and he respected the morality of Jesus' character. That, that may not sound like a particularly controversial statement. And in fact, even Rav Yaakov Emden, who we know is the sort of like a great firebrand and fighter for the purity of faith of traditional Torah, had praised Jesus' mission to the non-Jews in his very interesting work, Seder Olam Rabba Vizuta. I have a quote from, from Rav Emden saying that the Nazarene brought about a double kindness to the world. The Nazarene is referring to Jesus of Nazareth. On one hand, he strengthened the Torah of Moshe majestically, which is an amazing statement to say about Jesus. And on the other hand, he did much good for the Gentiles by doing away with idolatry and removing the images from their midst. Which means within Jewish circles, there was a subset of Jewish thinkers who were able to already shift their thinking on Christianity, or at least separate their thinking on Christianity from the social, the social reality of Christians. So fine, doesn't seem like a big deal. Mos Mendelssohn says what he says, but five years later, now it's after he's written Faden, 
if that's 1768, he gets a package in the mail, right? And it was a copy of a book called Philosophical and Critical Inquiries Concerning Christianity. Nothing so special, newly published by Charles Bonnet, who was a naturalist and a philosopher from Geneva and Switzerland, and it had been translated into German by none other than this young Johannes Kasper Lavater. But what matters for our story was the preface that Lavater made to his translation, where on the very first page, which means every German edition of the book had the same first page, he issued a public challenge to the German Socrates. And he said, before the God of truth, your and my creator and father, I beseech and conjure you, read this work, I will not say with philosophical impartiality, which I'm confident will be the case, but for the purpose of publicly refuting it, in case you should find the main arguments in, in support of the facts, sorry, in support of the facts of Christianity, untenable, or should you find them conclusive with the determination of doing what policy, love of truth, and probity demand, what Socrates himself would doubtless have done had he read the work and found it unanswerable. Meaning, either prove me wrong or convert. Now, this was more than just a personal insult. Because Lavender's challenge was really a test of the limits of tolerance that were happening within Enlightenment circles in Europe there. Right? The question that he was posing, not perhaps knowingly, because he was a Christian attempting to convert a famous Jew, nothing new in European history, but the question he was posing by doing it in such enlightened language and under the context of an enlightened culture was, is there really a new consciousness dawning in Europe? Is this really something new, a, a light enlightenment, a light that's driving away the shadows of ignorance that had fueled all the oppression of Europe basically in the Middle Ages? Or is this an enlightened Christian culture? Right? Perhaps refined from the Christianity of the Middle Ages, but everyone is invited to join this culture at the price of checking their own culture at the door. You're allowed to join the new enlightened Christian culture. That's a very different statement than true tolerance. So Mendelssohn's response was one of, his, one of his most important and celebrated texts. It was called The Letter to Deacon Lavender of Zurich. It was a short essay, and, you know, refuting the arguments of Christianity was hardly difficult for Mendelssohn. He had long ago polished his arguments for why Judaism was far better than Christianity. Don't forget that. He was a well-practiced polemicist. And so, therefore, he didn't waste his time in trying to sort of like prove that Judaism was better than Christianity. On the, on the contrary, he spent his time pointing out why the very demand that Lavender made by either arguing against Christianity or converting ran counter the core values of Enlightenment culture. And in so doing, he makes an interesting argument. He says that unlike Christianity, Judaism doesn't claim exclusivity. It's not a missionary religion, right? Because the church declares that there's no redemption outside of it, but Judaism grants the divine reward to anyone who observes the seven commandments of Noah. This is a, a critical understanding of Judaism for us here in the modern and postmodern era, and it's one that was lost, basically, on almost all of his readers. So I want to spend one minute at least clarifying what does he mean. I think we've spoken about it before, but the terms I use is that Christianity and Islam and the Enlightenment humanism that came out of Christian culture in Europe are all universalist, exclusive movements. 
What do I mean? Everyone is invited to join the community of the faith. They're universalists. Everybody, everybody is welcomed. But if you don't join, you're out. There's nothing for you. That's the exclusive. They are universalist exclusive. And what Mendelssohn said is that Judaism actually works the opposite. We are a particularist faith. We're the Jews. You're not. And if you've ever, if anybody out there is a Jew by choice, you've felt in your own flesh how we're also not so welcoming even to people that want to join the team. But we're, we're particularist, but we're inclusive. Because God has a plan for all creation. You don't have to be a Jew to have a relationship to God. Now, that's not to say there isn't hierarchical thinking. It's not to say there aren't challenges for understanding in classic Jewish texts the relationship between Jew and non-Jew. I'm not ignoring that. But fundamentally, the Jews have no need to make the whole world Jewish. Right? There's no need to be Jewish to have a relationship to God. There's, there's a need to be Jewish if you want a Jewish relationship to God. But every human being has a potential relationship to God. And so when Mendelssohn tries to articulate this, he's pointing out that the, that the unique capacity of Judaism to negotiate between the universal and the particular, between an individual as a human being and an individual as a member of one nation or religion, is a very important tool for avoiding the absolutism of reason that, on one hand, gave the Enlightenment its power to drive away ignorance and break down the sort of socio-political structures of oppressive centuries. But on the other hand, was essentially forcing everyone to bow to the same God. Right? And, that, and, and so that homogenizing aspect of the universalism of Enlightenment is something which the Jews cannot tolerate. And I'm telling you, we've seen it again and again and again in our history that anyone who seeks to homogenize, even in the name of enlightenment and good, etc., will always have to get rid of the Jews. You always have to. The communists had to get rid of the Jews. The Nazis had to get rid of the Jews. The Christians in their day, Islam in its day, right? Humanism. Gotta get rid of the Jews. Check your culture at the door, people. You're welcome to join, but as a human being, not as a Jew. Whereas what Mendelssohn is articulating is a vision of, um, uh, of a world which isn't about truth, it's about tolerance. Right? And so therefore, giving people space to be who they are because who they are matters is a very different attitude than this sort of absolutism of, um, of this sort of link that Enlightenment thinking makes between universalism, progress, and drawing all of humanity out of its primitive, meaning non-European culture into this enlightened world. So this is what he answers to Lavater, and it's a, basically two years of back and forth um, polemic correspondence. Um, perhaps the angriest line he writes in the entire whole set is he says, the fact that a small, despised, and scattered group of Jews still exists can be credited to a humanist theologian, may his ashes be blessed, who was the first to proclaim that God kept us as a living proof of the truth of Christianity. Were it not for that brilliant notion, we would have been obliterated long ago. He's talking about Augustine and that sort of um, doctrine of the suffering remnant that we've spoken about many times. Does somebody... Uh, sorry, I see people nodding, but I don't know if you wanted to speak. Right? So it's, you hear the bitterness in there. Like On one hand, he's faced with an uh, enlightened society which claims to be more tolerant and want to welcome the Jews and everyone, but only on the condition that we become like them. And Lavender, in particular, made it explicit. Like them means Christian. Okay, a deistic, more enlightened, not a medieval Christianity, but Christian, 
nonetheless. So eventually, the storm does pass. And in fact, Leviter even penned a public request for forgiveness um, and apology for presenting his, his ultimatum sort of in public. It was called the reply to Herr Moses Mendelssohn in Berlin. But he never abandoned his vision of converting the Jews. Nor did he ever cease to ask Mendelssohn privately now how he as a philosopher dealt with what he saw to be irrefutable proofs of the truth of Christianity. Now, for the sake of good policy, Mendelssohn took the olive branch with the apology. But in a private letter, he expressed the regret over doing it, particularly because he felt he was forced to do it by the reaction of his fellow Jews. This was a very public debate. And these letters were being published as pamphlets. People were reading them all throughout Europe. The Jews were nervous. Here is the most well-known Jew in Central Europe, perhaps in all Europe altogether, publicly arguing that Christianity is a farce, <laughs> basically. That's not good news for the Jews. And so he says in a letter to his friend, I don't understand at all how so many of our faithful friends are always shouting that for heaven's sake I should not write any further on this subject. God knows I was not happy to end the debate. And if it were up to me, I would have given a completely different response. So here we see Mendelssohn the fighter. He believed in his people. He believed in the rectitude of the Torah and his cause. And he was not pleased in what he saw to be this sort of retrograde motion within the Enlightenment to an attempt to actually just create a new Christian society as opposed to a newly enlightened society. That was one very big blow to his belief in Enlightenment. A second one actually came early in February 1771, right? When members of the Royal Academy of Science, which was sort of the the gold standard of intellectual achievement of Europe of its day, elected him a fellow in its company of philosophers. It was the greatest honor you could imagine, basically. But it, the, such an appointment required the approval of the, um, the Holy Roman Emperor. It was probably not the Holy Roman Emperor. It was probably the Emperor of, um, of Austria at this point. I should get the geography straight there. But Frederick II, and he balked at the official appointment of a Jew, Prussian, there you go. He brought the, the official appointment of a Jew to uh, the scholarly establishment because, and since the Academy's decision required royal approval, which Frederick did not give, even though the Academy, in, once again, a few months later, ratified Mendelssohn's election, nevertheless, he was denied the honor. And these two things, Lavender's sort of betrayal, right, and furthermore, we didn't speak about it, but the sort of upsurge of anti-Jewish writing that occurred during this very public exchange. And ultimately, his exposure to the king's unwillingness to go all the way and recognize him as an intellectual peer of the realm, as it were, really drew a clear border within Enlightenment society that the Jews were still not welcome to cross. So... We have about 10, 12 minutes, and um, there's two-front battle that's still going on within Jewish society and without. Um, I have one more phase I think we can get to today, but before I do, questions, comments, things people want to clarify, remember to unmute yourself if you want to say something. Yeah, Peter, go ahead. Oh, is it? There's a historical irony. <laughs> what else? Any other thoughts, comments, questions? I don't know if people notice, but you can raise your hand just like, uh, just like Peter did there. Yeah, Chuck? 
Somebody there? Chuck, I can't hear you if you're talking. Yeah, yeah, Peter. Oh. So, so we're going to get to their response. I mean, at this point, Mendelssohn is, is a figure of some controversy within the rabbinical establishment because he's mixed up in these intellectual circles. At the same time, he's recognized as a real scholar. We didn't speak about it. He tried to get smicha from Jonathan Ibschitz, interestingly enough. We didn't, I, I decided not to go into the Ibschitz emden affair, but Ibschitz refused to give it to him because he was so involved in philosophy. Just like the, if you know the Ibschitz emden affair, it's like the irony. Um, his real break with the rabbinical establishment is about to come. And it's actually not really because of him, but because of one of his um, sort of contemporaries. So we'll get there. Other questions or comments? Yeah, Peter. And, and, and you're entirely correct in making the comparison because Wilson was a direct, philosophically direct outgrowth of classic modern political philosophy. That what it was to make a nation was a melting pot. And don't forget, a melting pot really means to be absorbed into the host culture. Right? In, in America, it wasn't about melting pot and some new culture was going to emerge. It was about white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant being the definition of American. And everyone's welcome to join, which is a very liberal stance, so long as they become like us. You're entirely correct. And it is reflective of this vein in Enlightenment thought. Other comments or questions? Yeah, shall, uh, no, wait, is Marshall? Yeah. So it's a, it's a good question because I don't want our knowledge of history to confuse us about this time. At this point, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. There is no reform movement. right? You're always going to have people that are more sort of excited and involved with Torah and mitzvot and those that are less. But, but the communities at this point, first of all, are legally constituted entities which have a status in front of the state. The state is, is sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly responsible for appointing the religious leadership. Right? And there, there is no, um, and there's a sort of, like I said, a, a cultural revolution happening within a certain intellectual subset. But in practice, the assumption is a Jew is someone who keeps the mitzvot at this point. And like I said, even within that assumption, like in orthodoxy today, there'll be people that really do, and there'll be people that do less. And, but, but there is no official alternative. Does that help answer your question? As, as far as I know, 
that has not yet become a question, and it's about to be within the next, you know, say, 20 years of our story, as far as I know. Good. Last five minutes. Um, so, I mean, last five minutes, actually, before I start in on, on uh, Mendelssohn and the Jewish problem, I just, maybe I'll just do a bit of a summary to make sure we hold all the, the pieces we have here, and, and that will set us up nicely for the second half of the class, which means I have all my notes for next week. Isn't that exciting? You guys are excited? I'm excited. Um, so it's, it's cool to remember that um, in Mendelssohn's view, an enlightened society recognizes religion as a matter of conscience, meaning that observance should stem from your own sense of obligation, not from any systems of threat, or coercion, or punishment from within, and not regulated by the state from without. Right? And which means that he's, again, got this two-front battle. He wants to fight the state to allow Jews as Jews into society. But he has to also struggle within traditional Jewish society, whose primary means of enforcement at this point is the ban. Different gradations of excommunication. And that speaks to your point, Mark. Right? As we saw very powerfully in the story of Baruch Spinoza, that the ban began to break down within Northern European society when it became viable for a Jew to leave the Jewish world and not join the Christian. And that's why I characterized for you guys Spinoza as basically the first secular Jew. Now that option hasn't quite yet emerged in German society, but it's coming. And, and Mendelssohn saw it not only as um, a holdover from the Middle Ages that caused the non-Jews to look down upon Jewish society, because we were using legal tools to coerce our sort of fellow co-religionists to stay within the behavioral fold. But he saw it as particularly oppressive to his philosophical stance that I said, religion is a matter of conscience. Nevertheless, he believed very much in the binding nature of Torah. I have a quote here. It says, I cannot see how those born into the house of Yaakov can in any conscientious manner disencumber themselves of the law. No sophistry of ours can free us from the strict obedience we owe to the law. And reverence for God draws a line between speculation and practice, which no conscientious man may cross. Meaning, as much as he saw religion as a matter of conscience, he also saw it as a binding covenant. Right? And in that, he really placed what will become one of the hallmarks of modern religion right at the center of his philosophy, which is autonomy. This sense that, that, that real religion is the product of an autonomous human being entering into relationship with God, even if that relationship is commanded. And it's a complex, I don't know how all you guys do it, but it's a complex reconciliation that has to be made at some point. If I believe that I am bound to the Torah, and yet I believe that I have freedom of will, autonomy, I'm allowed to, not allowed, but I simply can do what I want, that offers a very different relationship than simple obedience. And I personally would argue it offers a much richer relationship. But that, from a philosophical standpoint, is Mendelssohn's stance. Nevertheless, like I said, he's fighting this sort of two-front battle, trying to e erase social and civil exclusion that the Jews suffer in European society. Right? And we'll see that culminate in his great work, Jerusalem. And he's fighting the rabbinic power of his day in order to try to sort of um, remove the censorship and communal bans that religious authorities were using to enforce the norms and hold back what they saw to be the tide of Enlightenment culture from overwhelming traditional Jewish culture. The truth of the matter is, I think even though we're a couple minutes early, 
I think I'm going to stop there because I'm looking at the what comes ahead and it's an entire Parsha that I don't think it's worth entering into. So um, I appreciate you guys coming and all your questions, comments, concerns. I want to remind folks that the uh, webinar is ongoing. If you're interested in a little bit of pre-Pesach preparation, we started last night. I think it was pretty successful. If people want to join the session next week, I'm happy for what is, I think, a reasonable cost to share the videos. If you want to join in, you're always welcome to send me an email um, if you have questions about that. And uh, aside from that, everyone should just be healthy and well. Stay safe out there. Um, and you're always well, welcome to e email me comments and questions on the class or things that, um, that you would like to do going forward. So you're very welcome. You're great. This was a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast, please contact jamie at pardes.org.